Um, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer... She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Thus ends the reading of God's word.
So you just heard probably the most famous adoption story in the whole Bible. The story of Moses being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt from Exodus chapter 1 and 2. He's probably the most famous singular adoption story in the whole Bible, but he's probably the second most famous full adoption story in the whole Bible. And so on the front of your bulletin today, you see the the quote by a a theologian named J.I. Packer who's a legend. He just passed away a few years ago. But he has this beautiful quote, and it's really central to kind of getting me started for what we're going to learn about today. But he says this. He says, Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. It is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Adoption. If we understand the image of adoption, then we really understand the fullness of what the Bible refers to as the gospel or the good news of Jesus. It is the highest privilege. That's a pretty amazing statement to make. How can it be that adoption is the highest privilege of the Christian faith? And so that's what we're just going to look at for just a few minutes this morning uh, is this theme of adoption that surprises us in the story of the scriptures. Just like how Moses was found by Pharaoh's daughter and how that changed the course of literally human history, could the same be true for people like you and me as well? So just a couple of things about adoption. Number one, the first thing we're going to focus on is that adoption is a rescue. And so if you look at Moses' story, we see the, the reality that Moses was rescued out of the water, out of the reeds, it says, in Egypt. So as, again, we read a little bit of a longer text this morning to give you the background as to why it was such a startling rescue that Moses experienced. Because what happened was Moses and every other male Hebrew at the time was literally left for dead. They were supposed to be slaughtered and left for dead. They had no hope. They were on the outside with no hope. But Moses was, first of all, before he was saved by Pharaoh's daughter, he was, first of all, saved by a loving mother who hid him in the reeds. She didn't put him to death as what the order was. She defied the order of Pharaoh, the most powerful leader in the world at the time. And she put him in a little basket in the reeds. And at that moment, that was the greatest act of love that a mother could show her child. Can you imagine how difficult that was, though, for her to push him out into the water and what she was experiencing at that time emotionally? Even though she knew it was, it was what was best for her little baby boy, can you imagine, I'm sure you can, the heart-wrenching pain that it takes to push your baby boy out into the reeds of Egypt? And just a little while later, we don't know how long it was necessarily, but a little while later, that little basket meanders along the river. And by God's providence and his beautiful timing and grace, that little basket finds itself to the worker for Pharaoh's daughter. And they brought him in. They drew him out of the water. And that's what the name Moses means. 
means drawn out. He's drawn out of the water. He was rescued out of the water. Maybe there even were snakes in that water too. We've already learned about snakes today. By the way, just so we're clear, when they're talking about snakes upstairs, they're not handling snakes or anything weird like that. Just want to make sure. If we have any visitors here, they're like, what kind of church am I at? We're not a snake handling church, I promise. Just so we're clear. So that's the most famous adoption story in the Old Testament. But if you look in your bulletin today, there's also a a little reading from Galatians chapter 3 and 4. And this is the Apostle Paul years and years later. Jesus has already been born. He's lived the perfect life. He's died on the cross by this time. He's ascended back up into heaven after his resurrection. A church has been born. People are, are being changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Galatian church. And this is part of what he says here. Listen to what he says about adoption in this passage, Galatians 3 and 4. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, which is what we talked about last week, being justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God or sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. After Jesus, the same adoption that happened to Paul, or that happened to Moses, literally, spiritually now, is the reality for us in Christ. And so Paul is describing what happens spiritually to people to be rescued out of one condition and into a new condition, a spiritual adoption. So Paul first describes their spiritual condition through four different little images. Uh, The first one, he says, you were captive under the law. Captive under the law. And by the law, he means all the Old Testament demands and its legal restrictions, things you had to do in order to be right before God. We were held captive by it. It was heavy over us. Like picture the law just sitting on top of you and you can't get out from it. (laughs) My wife and I got a new mattress this week and (laughs) Nana is laughing at us because she she watched us try to carry a new mattress up our stairs, me and Sarah. And this mattress is like on top of us, sitting heavy on us. That's, That's the image of the law on top of us. The same way this heavy mattress was on top of me and Sarah trying to make it up up the stairs. If you're laughing in your head, you should be because it was comical and we barely survived and we're sore. (laughs) And such it is with the the demands of the law. It was 
It was cap- we were captive to it. It was a heavy burden on top of us. The second image is that it says we were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So we, we couldn't get out of it. The law was, became like a prison to us. We were stuck inside without any hope of getting out. We, the key to getting out would be to live it perfectly. And who among here can, can perfectly obey the, all the laws that God put forward in the Old Testament? It was, it was such a righteous, holy standard that it was, it was like a prison to us. And it, was, it became evident that we were not going to be able to get out on our own. The third image is it says the law was our guardian in verse 24, meaning that its demands kind of followed us everywhere. Just like if, if you had a guardian who was kind of walking with you everywhere, making sure you wouldn't run away. We couldn't get away from it. The law follows us. And then the last image, the fourth image, is that going to chapter 4, verse 3, it says we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And by that, elementary principles of the world, that's now not just the Jewish law, because you may be saying, well, I'm not an Israelite. I'm not Jewish. I never really thought I needed to, to obey the Jewish law anyway. Well, this is now where it comes in for the Galatians and where it comes in for you and me, is it's not just the Jewish Torah that was laying heavy on us, but it's the principles of the world, meaning the demands of how to live life well and rightly in the world, the common way of the world, meaning that we are stuck within a broken system that naturally will make us enslaved, enslaved to the ways of the world that are ultimately not for our good. We live in a broken, fallen system that is not going to allow us to live a flourishing, good, full life in and of ourselves. We're stuck within it. And so the summary is we're slaves, spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking, we're stuck within, we're heavy over, we can't get out, we can't get away from this idea of the law. And so this is where the idea of adoption as a rescue really should resonate with us because if we're stuck at every corner and in every way within this, then that means someone from the outside has to come in and literally rescue us out of it to have any hope. A jailbreak, you could say. And so the rescue is, first of all, then it's a reversal. You may notice in the Galatians passage, there's two verses that begin with the word but. But the first one is in verse 25. But now that faith has come. And the second one's in chapter four, verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. These two but statements are reversals, meaning that now because Christ has come, something new is possible. And now that God sent forth his son in verse five of chapter four, it says redemption can happen. God sent sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law. Those of us who were under the law, God sent his son to redeem us so that we might receive adoption. So redemption leads to adoption. So rescue is a reversal. But secondly, rescue is this idea of redemption, which means that there's a cost involved. So if you know maybe what the word redemption means, the common way we use it today is like a redemption center take your cans and get some money back for your cans. But there's a cost. There's a sacrifice that has to happen. 
God literally buys us back. That's what redemption means. God sent his son to buy us back from the law and the elementary principles of the world, to redeem us from it, to get us out of it, to unlock us, to break us out of it. God spent everything he has to buy you back, to set us free. It just, it has to be said, the price of adoption, so Molly shared a little bit about her adoption story, for instance. Um, Maybe some of you have gone through adoption processes as well. Or even if you've gotten like a, a pet, you've gone through an adoption process. There's a fee of some sort to various degrees. But the price of adoption for God was what? His very self, his very self, his, his fullness, his son, Jesus. That is the full price of what redemption costs for, Jesus, for God. To, to adopt you cost him 100% of himself. God sent forth his son, his own self, to adopt us. So that's, that's the first thing is that adoption's a rescue. A costly, sacrificial, beautiful rescue that God does. The second thing is that adoption makes you family. Adoption is a, it's family. It's, a, it's the most beautiful family image that salvation uses. So there's a lot of images for salvation. Last week, remember, we talked about the legal one, like the courtroom setting. It was kind of a heavy sermon because we were talking about the legal demands of what God has done to, to get us out of court, get us out of our sentencing. This week, it's about how God is bringing us in to his family, this relational component. In verse 26, it says adoption means that we are now all sons and daughters of God through faith. God brings us into his family. We become his sons and daughters. You know, so the, the, the version I read from here that's printed is from the English Standard Version, and they translate it sons because that's literally what it means because that's what a, a, a Jewish person reading this back in the ancient times would have read it as, as the heir comes through the son. But really, it's, it's all-inclusive here. It's sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of God. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And John 1, not 1 John, but now John 1, 12 and 13 says, To all who did receive him, Jesus, and who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. He gave them the right to become children of God. So we, we have a legitimate new family through faith in Jesus. For those of us in this room that have put our faith in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. We're family together with God. A um, couple, couple of you asked uh, just very kindly as I walked into church this morning, Stephen, how was your week? And I probably for each person kind of rolled my eyes and gave an exasperated sigh because I spent the majority of my week at conferences and um, sitting in a big conference room, listening to speakers and talks. And it just, in one sense, it was kind of mundane. Um, but as I was preparing this sermon and talking about sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and how we're a new family, I took a step back and realized that I was in Chicago at the beginning of the week, and then I was in Quincy at the end of the week. 
my wife Sarah was in Korea last week. We're all like all around the world doing these things, these conferences and these tasks that we have to do for our jobs. And we were all with family. We were with our brothers and sisters in Christ from Korea to Chicago to Quincy. The guy that talked in Quincy was the most, the most Southy guy you could imagine. He was, a, he was a Southie native. He talked like a guy from there. In some sense, like he and I had nothing in common, but we had Jesus in common. And we're brothers and sisters together. It's like a family meeting. Brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, a beautiful reality. And so part of that being family together means that in Christ and through faith in him, we have new rights as sons and daughters of God. And that's what Galatians 3 really talks about in a beautiful way is that because you're now a son and daughter of God most high and brothers with Jesus, you now get a beautiful inheritance that you didn't have before. Everything that was Jesus's now is yours as well because you are a legitimate son of God, just like Jesus is. You're an heir to the throne with Jesus, a co-heir with Jesus. And this language is throughout the New Testament. It's not just Galatians, it's in Hebrews and it's in other letters as well, talking about being an heir of God, meaning that everything that Christ has, that everything that's prepared for him in heaven now is yours as well. And it's mine as well for those of us who believe. It also means that we have this radical unity, just like I mentioned the guy from Southie or the Korean that Sarah was with or the South side of Chicago pastor. Like we are radically unified together in Christ. The way Paul puts it in verse 28 is now there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. He's like, and in some sense, there's really no male or female, not to say that our gender is now taken away, but just saying that that doesn't define you. What defines you is that you're a child of God. We have radical unity. It also means just a couple other things is that in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how because you're a son of God, now we get the the righteous and good discipline of God as our father. So if you have a good father, discipline comes along with being a son or daughter of that father. And it's a good thing because he teaches you how to live, teaches you what's right, what's wrong. And it, as an adopted son or daughter of God, we get the discipline of God as a loving father who cares for us, who gently corrects us and rebukes us when we're doing something stupid or about to wreck ourselves. God gently corrects us, brings us back. And then lastly, the spirit of God comes into our hearts. So by being adopted into God's family, we're brothers and sisters, we're sons and daughters, we're all part of this one big family, but the thing that unifies us is that the spirit of God is sent into our hearts. And this is the last point, is that adoption really is, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who binds us together and who wins us into God's family. And that means that just like literal adoptions that we see around us today, you can't, you can't win yourself into being adopted. So just like a little puppy that's sitting there in a shelter, he can't go find his own person to adopt him. He has to wait for someone to come for him. Or literal boys and girls around the world who are waiting for homes, they have to wait for the parents to come to them to pay the price and to sacrifice to be adopted. It's not by them. 
And so in that sense, adoption is the greatest work of undeserved grace, unmerited favor that there is. It's a beautiful reality. It's not earned or deserved even, or even manufactured. It's the free, beautiful work of God through his spirit. I don't have time to read it, but uh, if you want to write down Romans chapter 8, read Romans 8 sometime about the role of the Holy Spirit with regards to adoption and how the Spirit of God works to adopt us into his family and to bring us to himself. Adoption is all about the Holy Spirit's work. And as you continue on to read in, in, in Romans 8, it turns, um, it, I'm actually am going to read just a small portion of this because this is where we're going to finish today. Uh, beginning in Romans 8, verse 17, the whole chapter turns from the Holy Spirit's work in adoption to then now, what does the Holy Spirit do through sons and daughters of God? And what he does is he reveals to us that as an adopted son or daughter, that means that you should live your life naturally thankful and dependent on the grace that you've received to be adopted into a new family. Also, while acknowledging the weakness and the suffering that life naturally is. And so from verse 17 on, Paul says this. He says, if we are children, then we are heirs. And if we're heirs of God, then fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And he goes on to say things like, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, so consider your life before you were adopted, for instance, the suffering that you feel there, those sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us which we get to taste when we are adopted into the family of God. And then he says, because of that, the spirit helps us in our weakness. And then we know how to pray. We know how to serve others. We know how to look for the the orphans around us and to try to bring them in to the family of God as well. And so it turns into a missionary call, right? Like you are brought into God's family in a real sense, so that you can best identify the other orphans that are out there who are suffering, who are in need, who are in need of a true father, in need of brothers and sisters, in need of a family of love to bring around them. And so it turns into a missionary takeaway for us of loving the world from our weakness, from our adopted state, and not in spite of our weakness. Weakness or suffering is not a problem, but it's actually a gift. Your orphan status that you remember before faith in Christ actually should help spur you on to care and love for a world around you that's broken and that's in need, in need of a true father. And so adopted sons and daughters really should be the most urgent to help find the other orphans find their way home. How cool would it be if there were no spiritual orphans in the whole world? Well, let's let's start for how cool would it be if there were no literal orphans in the whole world? That should be a primary emphasis of the church, right? James says that in James 1, visit visit, visit widows and care for orphans and their affliction. But then on a deeper level, the spiritual orphans, those who are living without a true heavenly spiritual father, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, let's bring the spiritually orphaned home. No one wants to live alone, especially spiritually. So I'll close with this comment, and then I'm going to introduce uh, the last part of our service. Um, The last comment I'll make is 
Um, I read a quote this week from the, the head coach of the Miami Dolphins, who's this young kind of, um, he's a different kind of football coach. He's a little bit nerdy, frankly. He looks a little bit like me. Um, it'd be like if I was coaching the Miami Dolphins. It's like, what's this guy coaching football for? Um, but he made this, someone was asking him, because he just had, a, he just had a, a, a child for the first time. And someone was interviewing him, and they said, how has being a father helped you be a better football coach? And he gives a beautiful answer. And he, he first of all, begins by saying how similar they are. He says, being a football coach and being a dad are very similar because it's all about serving others. It's about laying your life down in servitude. So he goes to servant first. And then he says this quote. He says, to learn to not exist for yourself is a beautiful thing. It's wisdom. That's wisdom. To learn to not to exist for yourself is a beautiful thing. And that's why as being adopted into God's family, we learn that as we've been given, so we give.